from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy. Thank you for downloading this podcast. If you like what you hear, please recommend this to a friend. So this week, we're talking about HSBC challenging WISE with Zing, a new multi-currency money transfer app. And we talked about how fantastic it is to see big established firms like HSBC really having a good go at innovation and launching um, you know, really promising app. But the question is, is it just too late? Um, are consumers really going to adopt yet another app? Is there really any differentiation? So best of luck to them, but that's a tough ask. PaveBank emerges from stealth with a $5.2 million round of funding and a lot of ambition. And we talked about this really interesting new bank trying to enable companies to build digital assets on the blockchain. Some really interesting opportunities to create regulated uh, digital assets. And are you running a side hustle to get some extra pennies in? Well, the tax authorities could be about to ruin your year. His Majesty's Revenue and Customs here in the UK is gathering data from marketplaces like eBay and Vinted to keep track of who's earning more than £1,000 through their side hustle. We get into all this and much more on today's show. A very happy new year to you all, and welcome to episode 815 of Fintech Insider. I'm Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy here at 11FS. I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by three great guests who are here to break down the biggest news stories in fintech and financial services. So firstly, a Fintech Insider welcome to Daniel Lanyon, Editorial Director at AltFi. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Um, for those of you who don't know you and don't know Altfi, can you tell us a little bit about uh, you and your role, please? Hello, nice to be back. Uh, my name is Daniel Lanyon. I'm editorial director at Altfi. We're a publication covering the fintech scene here in in the UK and across Europe. Um, I've been writing about startups and entrepreneurs and financial services for about eight years now. Um, but I've been a journalist for ooh, probably about 13, 14 years now. And um, yeah, always covered uh, financially focused things. But uh, but yeah, been specializing in, in fintech for about eight years. Fantastic. I'm a big fan of journalists, which is not a widespread sentiment in this country, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> welcome. Uh, we're also joined in the studio by Salim Danani, co-founder and chief executive at PaveBank. And we're going to come into your news a little bit um, in, in the episode itself. But um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about you and about PaveBank? Please. Sure. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so Salim Danani um, originally started my journey in uh, fintech or financial services. It wasn't fintech then, uh, about uh, 11 years ago. Um, it was in the UK, right when the rise, we saw the rise of Monzo and Revolut and 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 and, and uh, Starling and everybody else. Um, and we were providing issuing processing, uh, then went to start a neobank in Southeast Asia. Um, really taking saying, you know, we, we that allowed so much access and really changed financial services and even in developed markets like the UK. How do we take this model and really make a huge impact in emerging markets? So that was across um, uh, Malaysia, Singapore and, and other markets in Southeast Asia as well. Um, and now really looking at how blockchain is coming into the regulated financial system and we're building a business bank, uh, Pave Bank, uh, really. Yeah. So thanks for having me Super again. Super exciting. Well, welcome. And thank you for coming to the studio as well. 
And it's also a big hello to Chantal Swainston, fintech PR consultant and founder of The Herd. Welcome to the show. Can I ask you also to introduce yourself to those of our listeners who don't know you? Um, thank you very much for having me. Uh, as you said, my name is Chantal. Um, I've worked in fintech PR for almost 10 years now. Um, I don't know where that time's gone. I feel like I was at university just yesterday. Um, but um, I've worked for various different businesses on the agency side and then spent the last four years uh, working at Wise, um, which was super exciting. Um, I've since gone freelance and I'm also building out The Herd, which is the Women in Fintech Spokesperson Index. Um, essentially, it's an initiative to help shine a light on all the brilliant women working in fintech. So if you're working in events or if you're a journalist or if you're producing any sort of content um, and want some brilliant spokespeople, you can find our index with more information about all of our fantastic speakers there. That's a big job because there's an awful lot of brilliant women in fintech. There is. Um, but <laughs> well done. Um, okay, well, let's jump into the news. Thank you so much uh, for, for joining me. So we're going to start with our first story. And uh, Chantal, I think it will probably come to you first on this one, which is that HSBC is launching a new money transfer app called Zing. So Zing launched in the UK on the 4th of January, which is actually the day we're recording, um, letting customers hold up to 10 currencies at once and send money to over 30 currencies worldwide. Although it's part of HSBC Group, customers do not need to be HSBC banking customers to download and use the Zing app, which is now available on all Android and app devices, at least from the UK uh, stores. The first 10,000 members will be given up to 20 free international ATM withdrawals per calendar month. For all other customers, only the first withdrawal per month will be free, with a £2 per transaction fee from then on. Zing's launch follows Global Money, which is HSBC's existing fee-free currency service, which was launched in 2020 and reportedly processed $11 billion of transactions in 2022. Um, Chantal, let's come to, to you first as someone who's, who's worked at WISE. Obviously, the, the, you know, the media uh, sort of saying, hey, you know, this is a competitor to WISE and Revolut, and WISE and Revolut will be shaking in their boots. Um, what do you think your former colleagues at WISE will be thinking about this? Will they be shaking in their boots? Will they be laughing? Or will they be, you know, taking a hard look to say, hey, what can we learn here? Um, I think it's I think it's always an interesting one when new competitors potentially come into the space. It's always a good opportunity to kind of review whether there's a gap in the market that you're not serving and um, whether or not this is potential um, opportunity for you to learn or do things differently. I think... From what I've seen of Zing so far, I'm not, and I've, I've only kind of seen the most recent press release. I haven't been able to go in and use the app yet. Um, but I think the business model for both Revolut and Wise is much more expansive than just international payments at the moment. If we look at Revolut, um, I mean, the amount that they've been able to do without a banking license is is super impressive. They're touching on everything from mortgages to insurance to crypto. They're building a kind of one-stop shop in which FX and international money is one of the elements that they that they have. So I think it's it's not quite a competitor with what they're trying to be. Um, and I think if we look at WISE, um, again, very different, but their focus on international money is now expanding into partnering with banks and kind of bringing their tech to where the customers already are. So it's almost coming away from being that consumer-facing app and focusing more on delivering that platform technology. So in terms of both of those business models, I think they do kind of differ from what they originally began as, which is this consumer facing app. So I think I don't necessarily think it's immediately a competitor, but I think it's going to be a really interesting one 
to monitor and see how it grows. Obviously, it's got the backing of HSBC, which gives it a, a significant um, kind of better chances of survival, I'd say, in the in the current environment. But at the same time, I think there's a potential exhaustion of, of so many kind of apps in this space that are all consumer facing. And it's another thing to download and have to use. So um, I think it'll just be interesting to see how they how they get their customer acquisition um, and how they grow. Indeed. Very interesting. Quick clarification. Revolut does have a banking license in Lithuania, but not in the here in the UK, as you as you quite rightly quite rightly say. Um Celine, what did what did you think of this story? So, you know, HSBC's already got global money. What's I mean the, what's the point of saying? Look, I, I love Chantal's word that like, you know, I think it's exhaustion. Like, I mean, why? Why do we need another multi-currency app? Firstly, I mean, I don't know I think Wise's last numbers and we've seen Revolut's numbers and that they're public and $11 billion isn't in 2022 of the global HSBC app isn't mind-blowing, I'm sorry to say. Like, um, and I think that players like Wise and Revolut uh, and others around the world, depending on the market, have come up with really fantastic products. And it's not just anymore about launching one more product of what we've already seen. I think it's something about what is the what else are you delivering to the market and what value are you delivering over and above others? So, look, I mean... I. I Fantastic that a bank's doing it. I think HSBC customers and perhaps others are, the more people that have access to better uh, products will benefit. I'm not quite sure the fee structure is as good as Revolut from what I saw as a comparison and wise. Um, but let's see. I mean, there's. I'm, I'm glad they're doing it, but I'm not, not sure why wise would worry. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, what do you think? Do you think... Um... Do you think that's, this has a prospect of, of being successful or, or, or do you agree with the other two that it's, it's got a tough, tough road ahead? I definitely think it's got a tough road ahead, but having uh, downloaded the app and having a uh, sort of play around with it, I was actually quite impressed. And I thought it it, it, it had a very Revolut-esque sort of feel to it. Um, you know, pretty, pretty basic compared to Revolut. But um, I was really impressed with the, the onboarding. It was all super smooth. And um, and yeah, I think it's a, a, a very interesting move by HSBC on a number of fronts. Um, so I think, you know, first of all, um, you know, what's the long-term strategy here? Um, secondly, I think that there's a there's been a sort of concerted uh, series of efforts by HSBC to move more and more into the fintech space over the past sort of 12 months or so. Obviously, we've got the launch of Zing, um, but we've also had, um, I think, a push into embedded finance. They, they hired um, someone I think internally to lead their push into embedded finance last year, um, and then obviously you've also had uh, just under twelve months ago the take up of the Silicon Valley Bank European business by HSBC. So it does feel like it's it's part of a bigger effort um, and a bigger uh, sort of move into the fintech space by HSBC. Um, uh, whether it's successful or not, I think will you know ultimately depend on how competitive it is with um, you know with the the fintech players that we've already mentioned. Um, but also, I think really critical to its long term success is how it can keep up technologically with you know what is a, a very fast growing market in terms of adding features uh, to to apps. So um, you know the the stat I always like to look at is the number of app updates, or I should say the frequency of app updates for um, for you know, consumer-facing banking apps. Um, there's uh, uh, there's some, some great data which shows how 
infrequently, you know, banks can update their apps versus, um, you know, the likes of Revolut, who I think are, are sort of updating, let's say, you know, every, every 21 days or something like that compared to, I think, you know, I won't mention any names, but some very well known large banks, <laughs> which are, which are more like every 18 months or so. And, um, and that really is a great proxy to understand um, how rapidly they can they can go to market with a new feature, um, or just a, a new a new improved UX. So I think that's also going to be really dependent. And really, uh, how successful Zing is um, in that, you know, or at least a question I would love to to, to have the answer for. I, I have I have posed it to to HSBC. Is is who is doing the technology um, from the onboarding process? You know, it was uh, um, very obvious. It was uh, on Fido who were providing. Um, some of that process, but it'd be very interesting to know what's happening um, at a deeper level in terms of uh, the tech. Similarly, whether there'll be any use of external funding um, uh, in terms of you know uh, its ongoing growth, or whether this will just sit squarely within HSBC stable. The reason I'm looking at my phone rather than listening to you is I was just um, I was looking at it earlier and I didn't actually get as far as. Um, downloading it and using it. But I noticed that the provider of it is actually a company called MP Payments Operations Limited, rather than HSBC or indeed Zing, which seemed a, seemed a bit odd. Um, so yeah, I think there's some interesting questions about who's built it. I think I think we're all agreed that it's great to see HSBC doing things like this and trying things and so on. But I think there's a question about, is this the right strategy? Chantal, I want to throw something to you as a PR person. I noticed that HSBC published the press release before they published the app. And that just seemed like very old school, backwards, traditional way of thinking about it. I mean, surely fintechs get the product out there, test and learn, and then maybe start the media campaign. Or am I wrong, Chantal? It's so it's so difficult to do these days, especially if you're already a very large existing um, company that people are keeping an eye on. I think the minute that you launch an app, um, people are going to go in, they're going to make their own assumptions, they might misunderstand. And I think actually getting the press out there in advance can be quite good, especially if you want to drum up any interest in a waiting list. Um, so I can understand why they've gone a little bit earlier. I think one of the things I noticed was um, I couldn't find, and again, maybe this is just poor research on my part, I couldn't find too much information about the fee structure um, in, in what I could find. And I think a bit more information on the product would have been would have been good. But um, I guess maybe that's something that they're holding back for people to, to go in and discover um, and encourage people to download and play around with it. Because I think at the end of the day, I'm, I'm very aware that I'm commenting on something I've not seen. And, and Daniel, you're probably the most best informed out of all of us uh, to actually say what it looks like. But um, yeah, I can I can definitely relate to going out with press before the before the product for sure. Got it. That's, that's good advice. Thank you. Um, <laughs> silly, I saw you wanted to come in. No, no, I mean, I actually, on Daniel's point, I just before, I think the tech part's so important. Like, I mean, it is, it is probably the most interesting question that I have as well, like around what is their tech stack? Is it just a, an API orchestration layer sitting on top of HSBC core? And if it's not like all the power to them, like I, I hope they're, I hope they're successful. I think in PR terms, I mean, every, every fintech likes to PR everything uh, all the time. So, I mean, I can't, yeah, no. I think it's a fine strategy. Yeah, no, I mean it would be it would be interesting to know how many, you know, how many how many sort of customers they've been testing with and so on and you know what that kind of development process is. And and to your point, also super interesting to understand what is the tech stack, you know, how quickly are they processing those transactions and yeah, 
how efficiently are they processing them? Well, I think it's two things, right? Like, I mean, it's not just the tech stack. I mean, it is a big part of tech, so don't get me wrong. But like, you know, are they, uh, fintechs have been successful not only because they've launched products faster, but better products faster and, and, and iterated based on what their customers wanted, but it's also because they haven't been held back by all the bureaucracy as well, right? And, you know, I think that you get an ice ball, you know, an ice bucket poured in your head when you realize, you know, what bank bureaucracy looks like compared to like a fintech. And so, it's great if they have the best tech, but are they separated enough out the bank to be able to do it? And if they are, like, there's some hope that they'll be really agile and be able to at least deliver to whatever captive audience that they have, right? Uh, and deliver them fantastic product, hopefully. Um, but if they're not, I think that the tech is one component and there are other, probably some other things that, that need to be focused on to enable that, you know, quick iteration and, and you know, deployments of the app or products or whatever that may be. Uh, yeah, that's, well. that's such a crucial point. Have, has, has the team there got the ability and the permission to yeah. iterate fast? And, you know, to the point Chantal was making, you know, potentially pivot the business model a little bit, you know, as, as you know, she was rightly saying, you know, Wise and others have, have done. Um, have, they got the, have they got the permission to do that, the, the freedom to do that? Okay, um, Daniel, given that you've downloaded and play, <laughs> played with the app and the other three of us haven't. Any sort of final thoughts on, um, you know, the UX, um, et cetera, and how that's, uh, how that's doing? Um, what, what, you, what you thought of the app itself? Well, at the risk of, I hope I'm not getting anyone into trouble, but it, 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 as I said, uh, it gives me, it reminds me a lot of Revolut in more ways than one. I thought it was, I thought it was good <laughs> UX. Um, I thought it was simple. Um, I thought the onboarding process was brilliant. Um, but I would, you know, I would, maybe just if I can add to just what you were previously saying, the, um, you know, I think it's also worth remembering, you know, further to your point um, about permission to um, operate within, you know, a larger a larger bank. Um, the, the history of fintech, particularly actually here in the UK, is littered with examples of, you know, successful products that were launched inside of banks that were, um, that were, you know, scrapped um, after what, what looked like pretty expensive um, launches. So, soon, you know, uh, soon after launches. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's really key as well. I think that's well put. I feel like I've seen this film before. In fact, I almost feel like I've, I've heard the name Zing before. <laughs> uh, you know, there's been a previous product. So I, I hope this particular film doesn't have the same ending that so many of those, those previous uh, launches so um, every let's you know let's wish every success to the team at HSBC. Fantastic to have got to where they've got to, and we wish them every success um, going forward. Um, apart from Chantal, for all of her former colleagues, of course, don't want this to succeed. <laughs> well, who knows? Maybe they'll take over HSBC and maybe it'll become more so competition. More competition yeah. is always good. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's move on to our next story, which is that PaveBank has uh, launched with a five point two million dollar funding round. So PaveBank brands itself as the world's first fully regulated commercial bank that integrates traditional banking products with cutting-edge digital asset solutions. It also claims to be the world's first programmable bank. It's come out of stealth with this uh, $5.2 million round of funding led by 468 Capital, and the funding is going to be used to enhance its digital asset offering. Alongside the multi-currency operating accounts and global payment connectivity, PaveBank also promises a regulated platform for businesses to transact in stable coins, central bank digital currencies, and tokenized real-world assets. And last month, a Singapore-based startup received a digital banking license for Georgia, the country, not the US state, as it eyes international expansion. So this is fantastic news, Salim. Delighted to have you here in, in London to talk to us about it. I have so many questions. Um, 
I'm going to get the first question, maybe the really obvious one. Why, why Georgia for a Singapore-based startup? It. I mean, you, you're going to get that question. I right? love it. I, you know, and, and I'm glad. To, you know, I actually introduced George to the same one. They're like, you know, everyone looks at me and says, "Oh, the state," and I'm like, "No, no, 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 the, the country." So now it's been part of that um, part part of that conversation. So, um, no, look, I mean, I think around the world we are seeing a lot of movement around. Um, digital asset regulation. Uh, and we are seeing... Yeah, some, we are. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's hyper-volatile, right? You've got no regulation in one big, you know, highest, you know, the largest country in the world in terms of GDP. And then you've got, you know, a very clear, forming regulation, quite clear regulation in terms of Mika. And you're seeing Hong Kong and Singapore really develop clear regulation. And you're seeing the likes of Georgia as well, and, and, and Dubai, for example, uh, try and become hubs. Um, and so that was that was the first part in terms of clear regulation. The next part was that, uh, I, you know, uh, as a team, we really believe that banking licenses, where uh, where you what you, the kind of license that you need to be able to effectively operate and capture the largest revenue pool, not uh, not just today but going forward. Um, you know, regulators are like any other business; they don't want to regulate five types of the same business. Uh, and so it was very important for us when we looked when we see the movement of digital asset regulation and the kind of prudential oversight that will be needed um, that there are going to be banks or they're going to be the ones which are going to be able to launch and 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 have a lot of uh, ability to launch the most innovative solutions. So that's one um, or it's two rather. Um, and so we looked at a bunch of regulations and we wanted someone that's going to be, uh, you know, a, a, a regulator that's going to be quite agile um, and move quickly, but yet respected. Like you can get a license in you know, <laughs> other countries that don't have, you know, quite... Very small uh, countries, let's uh, say. Yeah, very, yeah. Very small you countries. Know, and, 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 all, yeah. And, you know, and again, not to, not to, you know, call any countries out, but, you know, we wanted a country which, for example, had two big banks listed on the FTSE uh, 250 that were AAA rated. We wanted that, we wanted to see that kind of light at the end of the tunnel. And again, we started this journey, uh, you know, you know, uh, you know uh, late Q2 last year, uh, late Q1 last year. Um we wanted to see the light at the end of the tunnel for European integration and actually having access to a very large market, in which we saw that European candidacy come in for Georgia as well. So I think the number of the stars were aligning as we were looking at, you know, global jurisdictions and and we decided on on Georgia. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> next question, let's move on to the business itself. I mean, who is it, who is it for, right? Because not every consumer, for example, is going to want to bank that's licensed in Georgia. Sure. It's, it's for businesses, right? Who, who, who are the customers? Who is this aimed at? So, so, so what's it last businesses? I think that let's delineate the product and, and, the, and, the, and the licensing strategy because I think once you, you know, we didn't want to wait two years for a bank license. We wanted to get up and running very quickly. We wanted to prove the model out, prove the solutions out, and then expand our licensing to kind of capture a larger, you know, to target a larger TAM essentially, or SAM rather. Um, when it comes to the actual product, let me take a let me just take a step back. And, and when we look at when we look at digital assets, like we have seen multiple waves. We've seen the Shibu Inu. We've seen you know Luna Terra. Mm -hmm. You know that looked like a bank, smelled like a bank, or wasn't regulated like a bank. And we saw these kind of issues. Um, and now we're seeing blockchain being integrated into the regulated financial space. And if we just take a like a second to say like you know what impact is that going to have on the financial world in terms of solutions? And again, I don't think most businesses and it could be wrong actually care about what blockchain in the regulated financial world actually is. It's all going to come to what value we're delivering. And so we're going to start, we're seeing this kind of operating layer or operating language, languages being built. Uh, if you look at Singapore government in the Singapore FinTech Festival, they talked about the uh, you know, global layer one, for example, uh, like an L1 for regulated stable coins and, and real world tokenized assets. On top of all of these examples that we're seeing around the world, even, even Bitcoin, for example, we're going to start seeing solutions built on top of money. 
Um, and we want to be one of the venues that allows where a lot of the programmable, like programmability mm. takes place, where products, new products and services are going to be built, whether it be to um, make settlement far more efficient, you know, uh, delivery versus payment, uh, or, you know, reduce the need for excess liquidity uh, in, you know, in movements, or provide a, an easier way for businesses to move between digital assets and traditional finance. Um, we want to be that venue. And, and our core product offering is business banking, business bank accounts. And then we are, you know, we're, we're working on a number of different fronts in terms of whether it's companies adding their own code, you know, using AI for people to type in natural language, what they would like their account to do. And also third parties building apps uh, for bank accounts, uh, for bank account users themselves as well. So a number of different ways in which we're trying to introduce these novel uh, products and services on top. I mean, the last question from me, and then I'll, I'll bring Chantal and, 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 and Daniel in. Um, for, for our audience, what, what exactly is programmable banking? Because um, I imagine some of our listeners are very familiar with it, and other other listeners are probably thinking, what is he talking about? You know, it's so funny. We, we were going out to raise money, just a small site story. We were going out to raise money in, in you know, in, uh, in, I guess, Q1, Q2 last year. And we kind of had this big, you know, programmable banking, you know, and everyone just looked at us like, you know, what are you talking about? And and I think that it, it is a it's, it's a tough concept, and I'm gonna a tough concept, and I'm gonna attempt to kind of you know really you know debunk what it what, what it means and and what really value that delivers. But I think that one thing I like to point out is that we've seen that that nomenclature bec- become a lot more that vernacular become a lot more common now with let's say J P Morgan Onyx for example, mm-hmm. and they talk about programmable payments. Um, and City, for example, and other large banks that are entering into the space as well as Standard Chartered, for example, as well. Um, so programmability, we look at it and we say, uh, we are seeing money and real-world assets um, moving on, on chain, a large number of them, and we're seeing a large uh, amount of value being delivered. This is essentially becoming an operating system in many ways, an operating language uh, languages. And we're going to see solutions built on top. And, and we, as programmability, we will allow our users and third parties uh, to build highly customized programmable apps. Like, we really believe that the number of products and services as this shift happens is going to be exponential to what we see today in terms of products and services. You go to a bank today, think of it like a, a Nokia phone. Like, you know, you went there, you get Snake, you get a call, you get messages, you get a few different things. I right? Snake. Yeah, I, so do I. Like, it was great. <laughs> you know, I fantastic, you know, time killer. But like, and... um and then we saw smartphones come out. And the notion wasn't that we're going to build every app and every product and service. Uh, the notion was that we are going to build a few things. We'll control a few things, like the trusted execution environment, if anyone here remembers the NFC contactless payment days and HCE. Um, and we will be, we'll control the antenna and a few in the messaging. But we'll allow people to build on top. And But we still own the user. For us, the user is the business bank user. Uh, and we're going to allow, we'll have certain things like the AML, the KYC, the, the, the anti-money laundering regulations, payments in and out, so we can, we still have our prudential uh, obligations, but then allow novel products we built on top. And I'm sure you'll ask me what they are later, but I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> well, I want to bring Chantal and Daniel into the conversation. So Chantal, maybe you first. Uh, have you got questions you want to ask uh, Salim, or have you got some thoughts you want to share on the, on the concept? I So I, I had to do quite a bit of reading about programmable banking because it's the first time I've heard about it and I needed to make sure I understood it but I still don't think I fully do but it sounds super exciting. Um, I guess one of my questions is if you're kind of building a lot of these things as fully customizable and I know that you've mentioned in I think it was the Forbes interview that I was reading about how you've invested in regulation and compliance really up front. Have you had to kind of how how have, how have you managed that if you're kind of building something that's completely new how have you navigated that regulatory landscape? 
Um, so I think that a number of the regulations that we're seeing, like the regulations, usually the regulations are very quite, don't necessarily move in line with where we see innovation happening, right? Like I think that we are seeing clear regulation in terms of how digital assets and fiat are going to be managed. And we're seeing that with Mika and others, right? I think the programmability, if we look at the BIS, let's just take an example of the BIS, uh, Bank of International Settlements uh, projects like Project Guardian, which talks about how do we take um, automation of money um, and bring it to the FX market, uh, for example. Or let me give some concrete examples. Today, you and I are going to buy, let's say, a house, right? And this is where programmability comes in. So, so you say you and I buy a house today. You don't, you know, Chantal, you don't trust me. I don't necessarily, you're going to give me the house. You don't, you know, uh, that, that, sorry, you don't trust me that I'm going to give you uh, the house. I don't trust you that you have the money, right? Like, and so we have lawyers and bankers involved that provide these escrow products and services. What's happening, and we're seeing these trials, by the way. So Georgia has their property market on the blockchain. Hong Kong has just kind of announced a few months ago, I believe, that they're moving onto the blockchain. Imagine if we could say, hey, you know what? I'm going to move X number of, you know, CBDC uh, into your uh, account, Chantal, and, you know, that will only be unlocked when the deed for the specific property has been transferred in my name. And that's an atomic swap. Um, and that doesn't need to have third-party actors. It can very easily be a bank, uh, an app sitting on your bank that you pay a fee for, for example. Now, extrapolate that to not just property, um, but into the glo- into global trade, anywhere where there's a buyer and seller. Um, I think some of the most promising examples have happened in, you know, let's. I think the most recent one has happened in the repo market, uh, cross-border mm-hmm. repo markets. Um, and I think we'll start seeing these solutions. It's more institutional, I think, today, but we're going to start seeing that trickle down. And that's what we're waiting for um, and kind of building towards as well. And how do we provide that access um, uh, to these different users? Fantastic. Daniel, um, do you have any thoughts on this? Are you excited by this? Have you got questions? Um, I think it sounds absolutely fascinating. I, I'd say my my, uh, my my real strong question, uh, Selim, is just really around sort of you know, getting a bank off the ground now in 2024. Um, you know, maybe I can actually use the example of Wise, where you know, as I as I understand it, Chantal, obviously, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, when when it launched, there was a real belief in um, building everything from the ground up, sort of tech wise, and and you know, and really sort of starting from first principles on everything um, uh, in terms of the tech, and obviously in house. Um, now, do you think that model, given you know? tougher venture capital markets um, and obviously a huge swathe of, um, of other fintechs that can that can help you with all of the you know the, the things you might need to build are you you know are you more um, I guess on the idea of buying tech rather than building it yourself um, yeah that'd be my question there's two sides um, to that that's a really good question and one I probably battle with multiple times a week, right? Like, I mean, you know, building a bank from scratch sounds great. Um, and it probably in the long term is better. But the capital that you're putting on and effort and, and sweat and tears in the early days is quite painful. Um, we took quite a novel approach. And I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, Simon uh, Vance Kalina, my, 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 my co-founder along with Dima, like, you know, Simon was early days at Monzo, one of the founding engineers, like they built their core. And it's probably one of the best examples of them, of a, of a bank having built their own core from scratch. Um there was nothing then and there is now. So we see great, you know, multiple different core banking providers. We looked at all of them and, and in previous lives, I've definitely evaluated them in much more detail. Um, but, and this is quite interesting. So just, uh, I'll come back to our strategy. But if you think that, you know, 
in, in the rise of like, you know, mobile phones and everyone wanting everything right, information right away, it was okay to put an orchestration layer onto a very old archaic core. And you could solve 80% of the problem. And we've seen that with a number of banks around the world. You know, you pay, you know, Accenture or McKinsey a large amount of money. They'll come in, they'll slap something on top and, and everything will be fine. Um, if you believe the nature of money is changing, uh, and it's not going to be just a, a simple ledger, but a more complex ledger, uh, then it's very hard to find. All of a sudden, it becomes very hard to find a core banking system. Um, and where you hold tokenized versions uh, of real-world assets and money on par with fiat. And we're not blockchain maxes. We don't think it's going to go all go digital assets overnight. It's not. It's going to become, a, it's, it's going to be, you know, kind of uh, operating together uh, in unison. Um so we are building our own core uh, to that to answer your question directly. But we are working with some fantastic partners as well in terms of compliance and to answer your previous question, like on compliance and 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 um, KYC and on the regulatory side as well. Um, I think that it's there's no use reinventing the wheel. But sometimes if you believe there's going to be some you know fundamental changes in how certain things are going to operate, then you have to kind of plan for those as well. In terms of VC environment, like there's two sides of that coin, I think. Like firstly... VC funding is becoming very hard if you've built, you know, kind of gone a long way with high burn, you haven't got any traction mm -hmm. and you haven't got any revenue. Um, but I think also at the same time, VC funding is no longer funding uh, ice cream trucks. You know, we kind of got to a point where anybody doing anything can get venture capital funding. And I think that that was, uh, that was, has to stop, right? And it has stopped in many ways. Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, I, I really believe that we're trying to change something and trying to do something quite big uh, here. And I think that, you know, VC, especially our VCs and, and, and I think the ones that we've definitely, a lot of them that we've spoken to are uh, very open to not just us, but other ideas and, and kind of the, the understand the investments that's needed early on to really make fundamental um, kind of impact uh, later down the line. And especially we're really, really early stage, right? So I'm sure we'll have many different conversations down the line and the equation will look different. But, but for now, I, uh, we have the latitude to do this. Well, fantastic. Congratulations to you and your, your team. That's all we've got time for on this story. But one 10 second question. How are you making money? How are you going to make money here? Um, lending, commissions, the good thing is, is that when you look at uh, in global interest rates, um, it's very nice to be a bank right now. Uh, you don't need to lend money. You can park money with a central bank uh, and, and, and earn money in a very safe way, in a much safer way. And I think we've seen this. And if you look at Monzo's annual reports and, and other banks, Starling and other banks as well, you've seen the income go up. I think long term, uh, this model will be evaluated. We are getting into the oldest, one of the oldest businesses in the world. Um, it will be uh, lending and investing down the line, but with our customers' consent and, and, and very clear understanding with our customers that we are going to be doing this and giving them a choice uh, as well. Well, fantastic. Well done. And um, best of luck to you and your team. And we, we'll look forward to watching your progress. Thank you very much. Okay, we're just going to take a quick pause uh, here and we will be back uh, very shortly. Okay, welcome back. Before we get into the second half of the news, a note to check out our most recent FinTech Insider Insights show. Uh, as we look forward to another busy year in FinTech, our Chief Executive David Breer was joined by Ross Gallagher and Kate Moody to debate what will happen in 2024. From financial well-being to big money acquisitions, they make some bold predictions and, as always, have lots of opinions about the state of our industry. So you don't want to miss this one. Uh, go check out that episode in our podcast feed. It's the one just below this one. Okay, let's get back into the news. 
So our next story is a potentially contentious one, which is that the UK and Switzerland have agreed a major deal on financial services. The new deal, the Bern Financial Services Agreement, is said by the UK's Chancellor of the Exchequer to be the first of its kind and makes open access between the two countries legally binding. It means financial businesses in either country can provide financial services to the domestic market of the other. According to the statement on gov.uk, the Bern Financial Services Agreement enables a frictionless cross-border provision of financial services between the UK and Switzerland across areas such as asset management, banking and investment services. For example, it will remove requirements to sit Swiss examinations or provide documentation evidencing suitability for the UK's financial advisory industry. And the UK government credits this to newfound regulatory freedom due to Brexit. Okay, so um, without wishing to revisit all of the arguments of the uh, referendum from a few years ago, Chantal, the UK government is spinning this as being possible because of post-Brexit autonomy, but isn't this only needed because of Brexit? Didn't the UK have access to 26 markets that's now been replaced six years later by access to one? Or am I missing something? I, th- I think the short answer to that is yes. <laughs> surely, surely the only reason that this is having to even having to be be considered is because we left really we left the EU. And I think um, I found it very interesting. I was reading the FT piece and um, found the quote from Jeremy Hunt that we haven't seen the details yet, but this is probably better than the equivalence framework with the EU. Um, so probably better. Probably better, but maybe the same. In which case. It's taken two years to get this over the line, and it might be the same, if not worse, maybe better. Um, so, yeah, I'm not quite sure this is the big win that the government seem to maybe think it is. Um, I think it's also interesting to know kind of like who is this for? Um, having had a look, it seems like it's going to benefit sort of like wealthy clients and corporates. Um, so, yeah, I think it's um, I think it's a it's an interesting, interesting thing for them to be pushing. Um, I'm not quite sure I see a huge amount of, uh, of value in it myself. Taking back control. Um, Daniel, uh, what was your take on this? Well, I did think it was, it was interesting and, um, <clears throat> and just sneaked in before the, the Christmas break. So it was fun to write about in that week before, um, before Christmas. Um, I think I largely agree. It seems to be squarely aimed at, at corporates and wealthy clients of, um, of uh, I guess, wealth managers um, and, and, you know, other financial advisors. Um, that being said, uh, it, it, you know, who knows where it could lead in terms of deals with other financial centers. Of course, Britain and Switzerland are, are, you know, two very well-known financial centers, but, um, I'm thinking, you know, perhaps the U S um, it could pave the way, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being generous here, <laughs> but for some, some sort of similar deal, between the UK and the US, obviously you've got, um, you know, you've got potential changes of government in both uh, countries this year. Um, so, you know, that's probably my most generous take. Um, uh, apart from that, I don't really see uh, hugely how anyone, you know, sort of a person in the street is going to, to you know, notice any difference in, in service provision. Salim, as a as a business founder, are we being are the three of us being a bit too skeptical? Are there are there are there substantial benefits here, or is this really yeah probably mostly about wealthy clients and and corporates? Look, I think there was a big splash about something that is going to benefit a small segment <clears throat> uh, as well. I don't necessarily disagree with you on that. I think it's very targeted in terms of benefit, and then the Swiss market is that. I mean, now you know what what are the banks going to do going to Switzerland? It's not going to be 
you know, your typical banking that you see on the high street, right? Uh, and vice versa. Um, however, more regulatory harmonization is always good. Like just, I would just view it like that. Like generally speaking, there's no harm done. I think it's, I think that yes, everyone has a political agenda, I'm sure, uh, to uh, why it came out, when it did, and what purpose. But at the same time, if that, if regulatory harmonization can get easier and better with an easy market like Switzerland, what more is possible after that? And what markets can be opened up after that? And so I think it's a good initiative. And I hope that that's, this is not the end, <laughs> the last we'll be seeing of, 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 of harmonization like this. You made an interesting point earlier about Georgia potentially joining the EU at some point. And, you know, so maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe this paves the way for the UK and Switzerland to harmonize their financial regulations with the rest of Europe. Yeah, rest of Europe, with Singapore, with, yeah. with other markets. Yeah. That's a very good take. Okay, I wonder whether we should move on from this story because it's difficult to sort of talk too much about it without getting into politics, which is not what this podcast is about. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's some good, new, there's some good points um, and some questions about okay. All right, so why don't we move on to our next story, which is maybe more interesting, uh, which is that uh, Blackstone has bought a majority stake in Sony payment services. So Japan's Sony Bank has reportedly sold off an 80% stake of its payments business to the New York-based private equity investor Blackstone for $280 million. Sony Bank will continue to support the business as a minority investor. The deal is Blackstone's first investment in the Japanese fintech sector. Launched in 1995, Sony Payment Services is now one of the top payment service providers in Japan and is valued at $350 million, you know, thus the $280 million uh, investment. Um, I was looking at this and I was thinking, how did Sony end up with a huge payments business? And then, of course, I remembered, oh, PlayStation <laughs> and so on. Um, Daniel, I might come to you first on this. Why? Why would Sony have a have a payments business? Why would they be selling it? Why would Blackstone want it? What's what do you think the logic is behind this deal? Well, it's quite mysterious. I, I must admit, not being a, a sort of a, a Japan financial services specialist, I, I I'm a little bit um, sort of clutching at straws. But what I would say does seem to be the case is there's a growing interest from private equity in financial services and fintech. Um, and, you know, from, from I guess, it being a, a more of a domain of, of VC. Um, and, you know, perhaps is a, is a sign of that. Um, yeah, I think that's probably all, all, I, all I would say. Salim, Salim, what did you think? We're, we're, we're talking a lot about sort of embedded banking, embedded financial services we see in you know, corporations all around the world trying to sort of embed financial services into their existing customer journeys. And yet here's Sony with a you know, big payment service provider sort of almost going the other way in sort of spinning out. Well, they'd spun out the business, but selling off the business. I, I think it's clear that, I mean, <clears throat> I think I can, you know, it's a very interesting play about Blackstone. Um, the the fact that, you know, we're going to start seeing more and more payments and we've seen that, that now that number growing in terms of gaming. And I don't see that slowing down at all. I think more people are getting into gaming. There are more elements that are chargeable. Um, um, and we're going to, we're going to see that trend as, as the, and more people get access. Um, we're going to see more people coming into this, into the fold, younger populations globally getting into the fold. And it makes sense. Um, for Blackstone, I don't know why Sony would sell it off because I feel as though their efficiencies, whether it comes to acquiring, whether it comes to holding customer funds, um, becomes a lot easier. 
I've heard rumors that Sony is getting quite heavily into the blockchain space and digital asset space uh, and, and NFT gaming, uh, NFTs gaming uh, with digital with digital currencies uh, as well. So perhaps they view that as just a kind of overarching deposit pool. I'm not sure, uh, frankly, but it did baffle me a little bit too. Yeah, maybe it releases some capital that enables them to do something else and that's why they're, sure. they're doing it. You do sometimes end up with these sort of businesses that are hugely successful that sit in wider conglomerates and they didn't quite know what to do with them and it was sort of accidental. It's hard to manage. Yeah. Like, it's hard to yeah. manage a bank. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Especially and, within a consumer <laughs> entertainment. Yeah, business. and it, if you haven't got specialization and if it's just an in-house bank, the question is like, is it is it operating as efficiently as it could, right? And perhaps that's, 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 a, that's a part... Uh, uh, the equation here. Chantal, what did, what did you think of this story? Yeah, I think very similar to you guys. And actually, the conversation you've had just makes a lot of sense. I was less um, kind of focused on why Blackstone wanted to buy it. And I was more curious as to why Sony wanted to sell it. But I think the points that you've made around trying to run that business with everything else they've got going on and maybe being able to focus on other things like blockchain, and it frees them up. Um, yeah, I guess that I guess that makes a lot of sense. It'll be interesting to see um how things change for both businesses um once that's kind of once that deal's been done um but yeah it was it was an interesting one for sure i, I think um finance and payments in the apac region is so different to how we process them in europe so um trying to get your head around them can be can be different if it's not a space you know very well they are indeed yeah because i mean the japanese were so far ahead of the whole rest of the world in in terms of contactless payments you know in a whole variety of areas you know we uh, we sometimes lose sight of just how innovative Japan was as a market. Obviously, China more recently has perhaps moved faster, but I think was was uh, was quite the yeah. quite interesting thing. So we see, and I'm seeing we're seeing a bit of a resurgence, right? Like a number of fintechs, you know, uh, not including Wise, I think in the last you know three, four, five years have kind of gone out there, and I believe other like big large acquirers have kind of opened up there as well. So it'll be really interesting to see what all of this, you know, these shifts mean. Oh. It's a huge economy. It's been a little bit of a sort of dormant giant in, in fintech terms, because um, there was, you know, there was a lot happening in Japan, and it's, you know, there's a, there's a huge opportunity there in that big economy, and yet, um, yeah, uh, I agree. It doesn't seem to be sort of <clears throat> spreading out. I think the other interesting thing here is the is the gaming piece, and that there's huge potential and huge potential growth in that in that market. And I, to be fair, I don't actually know that that was the bulk of Sony Payments' its revenue. But I could certainly imagine that that was where it where it came from. And your point about if it wasn't, it should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, They've missed a trick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe that's why they're selling it. I mean, who knows? <laughs> it must. It must be. Yeah, How else yeah. would Sony have ended up with a huge, huge payments? Oh, but you know, there's sometimes these sprawling conglomerates. Um, they own almost everything, think, yeah, parts of everything. Yeah. yeah. Okay, um, well, let's uh, move on uh, to the section of the show called Big Click Energy, which is a quick look at uh, a couple of other news stories that we don't have time to uh, cover in detail. So the first one comes from the FT, which is that a quarter of buy now, pay later users have been charged late repayment fees. So the research was commissioned by the Centre for Financial Capability, a UK-based financial education charity. It shows that 22% of buy now, pay later users have missed at least one repayment in the six months to December 2023. The study also found that younger people were more likely to receive late fees, with 34% of 18 to 34-year-olds being charged for missed payments. Despite this, Buy Now Pay Later continues to rise globally with record use on Cyber Monday and up to 30% of people, I think in the UK, uh, admitting that they will use Buy Now Pay Later to bankroll their Christmas shopping. So yeah, this is the same sort of 
double-edged thing we've had with buy now pay later repeatedly you know in this in this show over the past couple of years it's great because the way it offers convenience it's great the way it enables people to get the things they want now it's not great when it gets people into debt that maybe they don't fully understand they don't fully appreciate what they're doing and it's not great when it means that people end up spending money that they don't have and getting into debt and it really does need to be regulated like debt because that's what it is and um, reminds me a little bit of vaping. Um, you know, vaping is regulated <laughs> differently to cigarettes. And people are like, oh, yeah, well, it's kind of better. It's, well, it's kind of better and it's kind of not, re- it's not really better. It's kind of the same thing. And it should be regulated in, in much the same way. Okay, so that's sad to hear that, um, that people are struggling. We should see regulation. We're seeing, sorry, we are seeing, we we're are seeing, seeing some really good regulation come out, in, in especially in Southeast Asia uh, as well. And, and frankly, I mean, I think it's, this all is is a little bit expected. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, if cheap money has come to an end, and, and all of a sudden, you know, you start seeing a problem. It's a it's a good product, um, yes, but it, it needs it needs tighter regulation. The other story um, is that HSBC is selling its French retail banking business uh, to Credit Commercial de France. Uh, so HSBC has sold its French business to Credit Commercial de France, which is a subsidiary of My Money Group. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard of My Money Group, My Money Group is now being renamed Credit Commercial de France, um, and it has assets of more than 30 billion euros. HSBC has been slowly pulling out of international markets, having wrote, most recently sold its Mauritian banking arm and also its Canadian business. Um, and the sale continues HSBC's wider efforts to focus more on Asian markets. Um, so this story is really a conclusion of a process that's been going on for about three years. I think the, the main reason it hasn't been sold already was that initially the regulators were blocking it because there wasn't enough regulatory capital in the business. Um, it was never a very good fit for HSBC because it didn't have other European businesses and it didn't really know what to do with it. And the, the French business was always a bit of a sort of sort of lost stepchild. Apologies to all stepchildren and stepparents around the world. But HSBC France was always a bit neglected by the rest of the HSBC business and didn't really want to be part of it. Um, so I think that's only a good thing for all the employees of HSBC France. I'm sure they'll have a more successful future separately. Okay, so let's move on to the and finally section of the show. So we're going to look at something a bit more offbeat from the news this week, which is that His Majesty's Revenue and Customs are clamping down on your side hustles. Um, New rules in the UK mean that sites such as Vinted or eBay will be required to disclose certain information to His Majesty's Revenue and Customs, HMRC, which is the UK's tax collector. This means anyone earning more than £1,000 from their online side hustles, which can include renting spare rooms or reselling second-hand goods, will be required to pay tax on this income. HMRC already has the authority to request this information, but new laws from the 1st of January mean that this will be will now be mandatory. And the UK signed up to these rules via the Organisation for Economic Cooperation Development, the OECD, as part of a global effort to clamp down on evil tax dodgers. So, um, Daniel, do you you have your own side hustle? Have you had a a side hustle? Uh, What do you think? Well, I I actually did um, sell some some odds and ends at a car boot sale, um, which is a bit more offline recently. I'm not sure you could call it a side hustle, but I was actually quite proud of myself. (laughs) <laughs> that I, that HMRC I is coming shift. for you. Well, if if HMRC are, HMRC are listening, 
uh, or his love <laughs> then, uh, just to say that I give the money to my wife. So. <laughs> <laughs> Chantal, how about you? Do you have a do you have a do you have a side? I mean, it sounds like you're pretty busy, but do you have a side hustle? <laughs> um, I wouldn't say I have one anymore, but I do. My first, I don't think I can call it a job, but I'd say my sort of first money making ploy. Uh, I used to make dresses and sell them on eBay. Um, so yeah I I really enjoyed it and I um I used to my dad used to help me um so it was a bit of family family fun um he used to be in charge of the posting and the logistics and the less fun things and I got to do the creative fabric shopping and the and the fun side so um but yeah, so yeah, oh yeah, very good. <laughs> he had all the fun work. Um, but yeah, it does. It makes me sad because I feel like I learn. I learned a huge amount um, doing that at quite a young age, and I don't think it will. I think it could. It could be enough to put people off. I think knowing that if they if they reach a certain threshold, that they then have to go through the rigmarole mm. of of getting it to HMRC, and I think it's um, it could hamper some entrepreneurial spirit, which I think would be a huge shame. And a thousand pounds is quite a low threshold. It is. I think you could do that quite easily, couldn't you, in a year? But what happens if all global employment that we're looking at, a large part of global employment is moving to the gig economy? And how do we then view tax collection? I think it becomes a very, very tricky, um, quite a conundrum for tax, for governments uh, more generally. There's already, uh, you know, uh, and I think a thousand pounds, I agree when you look at one platform. Um, but I think if you look at multiple platforms, um, you know, most people don't work on just one platform. I think most people work mm. on multiple, right? So um, then then I'd, I would argue whether the threshold is too low. Now, I really think like efficient taxes are really, really important. Yeah. Um, uh, but I but as the world moves in this direction, there has to be some level of middle ground. Yeah. Uh, perhaps this is it. I think Chantal's put it really well. It's about getting that threshold at such a point that it doesn't discourage, you know, the sort of the younger Chantal making her dresses. It doesn't discourage her from stopping because she sold one thousand, you know, she sold nine hundred ninety nine pounds, and you know, there's this tax threshold and reporting and filling in a self assessment tax form. And oh my goodness, I don't want to sell any more dresses. It you would know, have that, put me yeah. right off back then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right, so. So what taxes um, would you bring in, right? So, so Russia, you know, used to have a beard tax. The UK's had all sorts of weird taxes like window taxes and bedroom taxes. You know, governments find ways to sort of levy taxes in all sorts of places. So if you could create a new tax, and I don't have a good answer to this question yet either. Oh, no. um, <laughs> what would it be and why? <laughs> who's, who's got a thing they would tax and why? Sugar. Sugar. Mm-hmm. Um like you, it. you know, you've got a large, I think that sin taxes are perhaps the most effective taxes. Um, and we've seen that around the world. Mm. Um, if you look at, and, I, and I, I'm just more familiar with Singapore, so please forgive me for, for using that as an example being there. We have lots of listeners in Singapore. Um, fantastic. So for my Singaporean friends, uh, taxes are quite low, uh, but at the same time, when it comes to buying anything that's going to have an impact on healthcare or policing or any sort of civil or any government spend or expenditure, you'll start seeing a very high tax. And I think that um, idea where you're balancing um you know, uh, people, you know, the impact that it has to budgets and trying to remove, trying to get more alignment between subsidies uh, and remove subsidies between different segments of the population, that becomes a lot more interesting. Mm. So I say sugar tax because alcohol's already taxed. <laughs> <laughs> and so are vapes. Um, so perhaps that's another uh, place to look. Daniel, what do you think? What would, what would, what would you tax if you were the Chancellor of the Exchequer in the UK or, or indeed you were head of the Treasury in Singapore? 
Well, crikey, um, we really are getting political, aren't we? Um, <laughs> well, I think vapes sound like a you know single-use vapes. I think you know they really they really belong in 2023. I don't think we should be carrying them through into the new year um, for lots of reasons. Um, but I would say you know at the risk going out on a limb, perhaps sounding a bit wacky, but I think simplification, not necessarily lower taxes, but maybe simplification of taxation is a is would be a good idea. Maybe that I'd look into that. I'm not, haven't done my research, but maybe simplifying, you know, we've got obviously all sorts of different taxes. Um, you know, I've heard ideas that maybe you could just have one tax, you know, it's all income, um, you know, not capital gains, et cetera, et cetera. I think that might be a good idea. Chantal, what would what would you tax? I mean, not dresses, obviously, but what, <laughs> you know what, what? would you tax? I'm going to sit in the same area, though. I, I would tax fast fashion because um, I think there's, there's information, it's... Um, I think it's like six in 10 items that are made today uh, end up in landfill. And I think it's um, it's a huge issue with people kind of um, buying products that are d- designed to um, last for about 20 minutes and they're not ethically made. Um, and I think it's I think it's a difficult area that needs a bit more attention. So I'd probably go for that. That's a, that's a really good one. That's actually quite close to, to where I think I would come in. I would uh, look at carbon taxes and taxes on single-use plastics because we're destroying our planet at unprecedented speed. And if we don't slow down, um, there's not going to be anywhere for our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren to live. So I would look for taxes on carbon use, taxes taxing things that create pollution. Obviously, there are some carbon taxes already. There's a lot of taxes on fuel. But I'd add more taxes around that because... That is also a sin, right? It's not a sin, it's not a sort of moral sin, but it's a sin against future generations. All the harm we do to the planet today is a sin against future generations. So I would look for attacks on harmful activities that damage the planet. Completely agree. Can I just give a just just an alternate? Like, I mean, yes, totally on the environmental side, I'm 100 with you. But you know, in the UK, the taxes are. It can go all the way up to 45%. How, what is the threshold? I know this is a fintech podcast, so I'm really sorry if I, I really, I know I'm digressing here. Um, but like, you know, uh, where do we stop? <laughs> and, 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 and what limit is going to be okay uh, for, and people need to see direct benefit, right? And, and that's not necessarily the right or wrong. I'm just saying that that usually comes into discontent around taxes, right? So we have to figure out what that, how we play with that in the future. Okay, well, let's uh, wrap up uh, today's uh, show, this week's Fintech Insider News. Thank you so much uh, to the three of you for joining me. Um, Where can people find out a little bit uh, more about you and what you're doing? Uh, Chantal. Um, So you can hear a little bit more about The Herd on the-herd.co.uk. You can take a look at our index um, and you can find me on Twitter at Chantal with two A's, G-S. And Daniel. Well, of course, altfi.com is the place to go. Sign up for all of our newsletters, etc. Um, but also, um, pretty standardly, I'm on I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter, or should I say X? Thank you, and Salim. You can go to pavebank.com, uh, or you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter, just like Daniel and Chantal. And as for me, Benjamin Ensor, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, or you can find out about the work that the team are doing at 11fs.com. So thank you all so much for listening. Uh, Please do join the conversation on social media. You can find us on uh, LinkedIn or X, or you can even email us at podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you all so much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.